Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. We're in for a real treat this week as our guest is Ben Casanecha, one of the founding partners of Village Global, which has received backing from some of the best business luminaries in the world, such as Jeff Bezos, Reid Hoffman, and Bill Gates. Founded in 2017, Village Global has invested in over 200 companies and currently has over $250 million in AUM. Like many of our guests, Ben himself has a diverse background as he co-authored two best-selling books with Reid Hoffman and has started and scaled several companies. In this week's show, we cover the importance of building strategic networks, how they use a unique incentive model within the Village community, how they form their own portfolio construction model, and what venture trends he thinks are temporary versus those that are here to stay. Now let's get into the episode here, all of that and more. On the podcast, we've spoken a lot about the importance of getting fund operations right. One of those things that you must do is getting the right fund administrator. And we're pleased to have this episode brought to you by one of the best in the business in Standish Management, an employee-owned company. As the largest provider of fund admins of EC, they currently serve approximately 750 venture capital funds with over $150 billion in committed capital under admin. Standish has also been designed by experienced CFOs with a deep understanding of the service needs of both the finance departments and GPs at every stage of the product lifecycle. Standish can also handle all the needs of a finance department, so GPs can do what they do best, and that's invest and help entrepreneurs. Check them out at standishmanagement.com. Hey, Ben, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samir. When I started this podcast, I figured a lot of the VCs that I'd have on would have this linear path into venture, you know, working at a company, working at an investment firm, and then starting their own shops. What I found, though, is a lot of people came from really diverse backgrounds. You're no exception. You've been an entrepreneur. You've been an author of a book. You have invested. And so when you started Village in 2017, along with your partners, why did you decide to double down on venture when I'm sure you had a plethora of different opportunities and opportunity costs? Well, I've been starting companies and writing books and articles my whole life uh, and going back and forth between the two. What I love about entrepreneurship and starting businesses is the opportunity to have massive impact on the world if you're successful. What's What I've always struggled with about entrepreneurship is I don't find it super intellectually stimulating because it usually requires ultra focus on the one market or product that you're working on. By contrast, writing books and articles and blog posts, which I've been doing um, now for 10 or 15 years, uh, I find very intellectually stimulating. Uh, But unless you're someone like Michael Lewis, uh, the kind of impact you have in the world is usually rather modest. And so I've been debating which of these paths to pursue over the years. And what I got really excited about with respect to the prospect of starting a venture firm is you can have huge impact by enabling the entrepreneurs at scale. And it tends to be pretty intellectually stimulating because you're working across so many different topic areas. So when Eric Tornberg and Dwayne and I started Village Global in 2017, for me, part of the motivation was to blend uh, these two ideas of intellectual stimulation and diversity, which you get through the portfolio approach of venture capital, and the impact of entrepreneurship, which I find super motivating. Yeah, so, so thinking about that, and, and I've heard that same sort of uh, reason and catalyst to get into venture because you get to work with so many different founders and which are building incredible products. But when you start a firm, you in essence are building a company to a certain degree, right? You have a commodity product, which is the capital you need it. In today's world, that commodity only means so much. You have a service, that you're providing that effectively truly becomes your product because 
That is the promise of a certain experience a founder is going to have in working with your firm. And then you have your target market and the entrepreneurs that you want to work with. And all of those take a lot of thought in terms of how do you actually deliver something that is a superior product and offers some level of differentiation. You've had a really interesting experience working with Reed. And you know you were his chief of staff. And I'm sure working alongside Reed, you learned a lot of different things about running a company, thinking about the entire venture landscape. And I think I read somewhere you sat with Reed at the Greylock offices and probably talked about a whole host of things. What did you learn in particular that guided how you wanted to build a firm in Village? Yeah, I was, I was fortunate to work with Reed for several years. We've written two books together. I hung out at Greylock and LinkedIn for a couple of years, um, working on, on a variety of his special projects at, at Greylock and philanthropically and politically, and, and then a bunch of stuff at LinkedIn before the Microsoft acquisition. A couple of the lessons that come to mind from Reed that have been applicable to the Village Global story. The first is about networks, because as you know, Samir, at Village Global, we, you know, we say we're venture as a network and network sourcing and selection and supporting is at the core of our strategy as a firm. And nobody thinks more about networks than Reed. I mean, the creation of LinkedIn is literally a reflection of his brain and the way that he processes the world. One of the, the best ways I think to describe Reed is that it's said when architects walk through an office, they see like ceiling ornamentation and light fixtures and, and acoustics. When psychologists walk through an office, they see, you know, daddy issues and avoidant personality disorders. And when Reed Hoffman walks through an office and walks through the world, he sees networks. He sees how ideas spread through networks, how social networks influence you in ways seen and unseen, how important second and third degree connections are in those networks. And so thinking about the world through networks, thinking about how ideas travel through networks is is his whole worldview, and it is imbued in every part of the village strategy. I think the second thing I, I, I personally have learned from Reed that's applicable to village is how Reed evaluates humans within networks. One of Reed's many gifts is his ability, in my opinion, to not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to evaluating a person's strengths and weaknesses. There are a lot of people in Reed's life, as in all of our lives, uh, who are flawed, imperfect, you know, in possession of serious weaknesses. And Reed has the singular ability to cherish someone's strengths and virtues and then manage the downside risk of the person's weakness, the person's weaknesses, or, or he'll help them get better at those weaknesses so they're not overly debilitating. Myself, for example, I find sometimes I, if I encounter a weakness or uh, an annoyance or some part of a person's personality that really drives me crazy, I'm more inclined just to naturally exclude them from my network and not want to work with them altogether. And Reed's ability to embrace the gray and to see the better angels of a person's personality is a real gift and allows him to work with a huge range of people. And so in the entrepreneurial world, of course, a lot of the founders that, that, that we back at the early stages are imperfect or they're, they're oddly shaped um, or they have serious strengths and serious weaknesses. And being able to uh, get excited by the strengths is a huge part of being a successful VC. There's a lot of good points that you mentioned there, including building relationships with people that have unique strengths and weaknesses. And thinking about this village that you, you have built, and it's composed of not only your founders, but these business luminaries, and those are people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Reed and others, is how you thought about putting those people together. You know, How did you pick those people? 
How did you get them excited? All of them have very high opportunity costs when it comes to their time. What exactly do they do? And what gets them so excited about being part of the, uh, the community that you've built? Right. And, and so to clarify sort of the, the, the village model or the, the luminaries that you referenced, Samir. So the, when we founded Village Global, we raised our first fund and now our fund two, primarily from, we call them luminaries. These are sort of world famous entrepreneurs, people who've built huge businesses, and it's mostly their personal capital in the fund. And so it's people like Reed or Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, folks like that. And uh, in addition to their personal capital, we use their brands on our website and empower our founders to use their brands thoughtfully as well. And then we get a little bit of their time for our most successful companies in the network. And I think one of the things we've learned about these luminaries and one of the reasons the village value prop was interesting to them as LPs is not just the opportunity to, to make money on the fund because all of these people are, you know, they're rich, but they like to stay rich and get richer and they have teams of people employed uh, to do just that. Um, so of course, that's one part of the, the value prop, venture returns. But the other is that, you know, these people are just relentlessly curious. It's one of the most interesting things I've learned in, uh, in interacting with, with them and their teams is just no matter how successful you've been, no matter how much money you have, if you can do something that might lead to an incremental insight or an incremental lesson, uh, that's worth a lot to them. I mean, that's how they got to be so successful, at least in part, is this relentless curiosity. And so our unique model at Village for sourcing, selecting, and supporting companies, and the way we do that is through this sort of massive scout network and accelerator and this community approach, and we do so on a global scale across sectors, um, rivaled only by YC probably in terms of scale. The way that we do that uh, is more likely to lead to interesting insights, interesting network intelligence, interesting people to flow through this network that will thus be interesting to the luminaries. So whereas your typical venture fund, you know, at a seed stage, maybe there's a couple of GPs, they go and invest in 30 companies, and it's all through those couple of GPs, personal networks, that might lead to an interesting portfolio. But when you compare that to the village approach, which is, you know, a couple hundred companies uh, sourced and selected through dozens of professors and, and founders and domain experts and ecosystem leaders all around the world across categories, the intel that comes out of a, a network like Village is, is more likely uh, to be a, of interest to these luminaries. So that one-two punch of uh, a fully for-profit venture fund that can deliver venture returns to the, their offices and the opportunity to learn and have that curiosity satisfied through our careful curation of these founders and we call them network leaders uh, was of great interest to the luminaries. The network piece obviously is a very big part of your business model, activating those networks, deriving value out of the networks. But the challenge for a lot of people with networks that get really large is truly managing those in a way to scale and that don't get so diluted over time where you have so many people that you're trying to manage and so many different type of companies and so many different type of, in this case, luminaries that it's hard to really get that value consistently. How do you guys think about that? Because I know your portfolio is much bigger and you have so many people you know, around the village network. How do you guys think about really managing, managing that systematically and consistently? I think it starts with the backgrounds of the core team at Village Global HQ. You know, my background, as you mentioned at the outset, Samir, uh, somewhat unconventional. And my partner's backgrounds and, and, and Dwayne and Eric Tornberg and the 13 other full-time people who work at Village Global HQ all reflect a passion for and an expertise in curating networks. If you look at the traditional venture capital GP and what they love to do, 
what they usually love to do is meet with founders all day, say yes or no, and just do pure deal analysis. And don't get me wrong, we all love investing too, and we do a lot of investing, and that's ultimately the, the core of the job is allocating capital into startups. But we also have a, a profound interest, and I think a unique ability in thinking about how to set incentives within a community, thinking about how to curate a network that's complementary to, to one another, with the, that is for the people within the network, thinking about how to build a brand and how that brand can create a halo over all of the activities, thinking about how to create a game dynamics to motivate people to act in the right way. All these sorts of things, most GPs that I know and mentor have little interest in, little patience for that kind of work. But at Village, it's what we're all about. We're trying to build an organization like YC that can scale, that can have a, a community, that can have a peer community between and among the founders that we back where they all wanna help each other, where there's this sort of ethic that that's kind of like being in a university, right? And where uh, and where they 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 actually feel like alumni in a sense of village and and that same kind of loyalty. To get there, it has to start with the GPs making a real investment of time, energy, and money. I mean, we spend at Village uh, more money on events and community things than than any firm I know of our size. So we really make a tremendous investment that I think can lead to this community dynamic. And it's not to say that these other approaches of venture firms are, are, are wrong or the other ways that GPs like to spend time is wrong. It's just about personal preference. There are many ways to make money in venture. There are many ways to spend your time. We at Village have chosen to spend our time doing a thoughtful job, I think, at curating this network so that it doesn't get too chaotic, as you said, Samir, so that the people in it can really derive value uh, when, they, when they need to. And you know, it's still early days, but so far, so good. To me, it, it sounds like there's two elements, right? This is part of your central ethos of anybody that's part of the village network. You come to expect to act a certain way. You come to expect to interact with certain type of people that share that ethos. And then you mentioned something in there that I'm curious about incentives. Incentives can come in all forms. The type of incentive people are most used to, like with things like scouts and venture partners, are financial incentives. Tell us a little bit about the other type of incentives you've, you've seen work within these type of communities that really drive the right type of behavior and drive that community value aspect that you're looking to really deliver far and above what you do on the investing side. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, they're, they're the two obvious categories of incentives for a community like ours is, is the economic and non-economic. So you're right, with respect to scout networks historically, Sharing economics with scouts is a, is, a, is one way that venture firms have incentivized them. We do something similar for so for the twenty to thirty uh, network leaders we call them the people who we empower to in turn back their smartest friends. Uh, we do share our GP carry with them, and we've invested heavily in a in a complex back office to enable us to do that at scale. So we do share uh, economics, and that's 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 an important part of it. Um, but then the the non economic is arguably as important. And I'll give you a concrete example of a tension where this can show up. So one of the ways that we try to motivate people in our community, be they founders, network leaders, other friends of the firm, is that as they do good deeds, right, as they perform, as they're successful, we give them greater and greater access to the more and more elite parts of our network. So for example, if we're going to host a roundtable with the CEO of Fidelity, um, you know, uh, who's one of our LPs, Abby Johnson, you know, the Fidelity has $5 trillion AUM. Her family office, maybe 20 billion net worth, one of the richest women in the world and, and, and a really important company. If we're going to curate a set of people to spend time with Abby and her team and present their big ideas, we are going to pick 
people who are performing well, uh, can represent us well, have something interesting to say, and who've been good members of the community. Making that decision can be tricky because there's only so many people you can put in that room, right? Abby is not interested in meeting with um, you know, 150 CEOs at once or, or, or a thousand friends of village all at once, right? We always are crafting and curating these, these really intimate and personalized experiences for our luminaries and other people who are important in the village network. And so almost by definition, you're including some people, which means you're excluding others. And doing that artfully is really hard. And one thing I learned from, from Herb Allen, who runs Allen & Co., who's, and they're also one of our LPs, is you sometimes have to tell people that they're not ready for an opportunity like that, right? You, 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 know, you sometimes have to tell a founder, hey, look, you're just too early or you haven't done enough. Um, and so to actually preserve the quality and to maintain a quality bar, sometimes it means not everybody can attend all of the uh, gatherings that you host. And to do so in a way that's respectful, that's clear, that's consistent, that's really hard. Um, but I think doing so well is what allows you to have that incentive exist and keep people motivated to do great things and to know that if they perform, they will access those sorts of events and they'll access the sorts of people that can be appropriate for them at their stage and, and ultimately help them be ever more successful. Those type of conversations aren't always easy. And, you know, people sometimes would look around and say, hey, why am I not in front of Abby Johnson or who? Name your other luminary. I think it is really important to do to maintain that type of network NPS that really drives the village story. And you sort of mentioned, you know, people like Abby who have done just spectacular things in their career, but remain intellectually curious. That to me always strikes as one of the most important things of any founder or even venture capitalist that you're always curious, you're always looking to learn. What have you learned from the luminaries that help guide you to look for certain characteristics in the founders you back? Are there certain characteristics in particular that you say, these are things that actually suggest that this founder is going to be somebody that's going to build a great company? Well, there's a couple things. One is sort of a meta point because we're talking about how curious the luminaries are and how, how that drive to, to learn has fueled their own success. Of course, we're looking for that same in our founders and spending time around our luminaries, seeing how curious and learning oriented they are uh, makes us never forget that key point. And so when we meet with founders, of course, we're looking for is that sort of relentless uh, learning and curiosity. I think another dynamic that's kind of interesting is being an independent thinker. And again, there's sort of this meta point as we've seen some of our founders interface with luminaries. It's fascinating to see how you know an early stage founder would respond to feedback from a luminary. So I'll give you a concrete example. We had a founder who met with, uh, Bill Gates did a set of one-on-one -on -one office hours with some of our portfolio companies. And and um, and we put the, the, the founder in the room with him and she had you know 15 to 20 minutes to sort of make her case, make her pitch, take Bill's questions. Bill had read all of the decks and done a lot of prep work in advance, which kind of shocked us, but it was awesome. So he came prepared, he had a prepared mind. And before our founder could get like five words in, he said, you know what, I'm really skeptical of this. And, and ticked off um, five reasons. And the founder, um, instead of wilting, or instead of saying, oh, well, you know, I, I understand, yes, those are really good points. She said, no, you're wrong. And here's why. And just being willing to push back, I think was a remarkable demonstration of conviction and really revealed that here's a founder who she'd spent years of her life thinking about this problem. And here's Bill, who's 
certainly probably the smartest person I've ever been exposed to in, in any context across all the people I've met, super high IQ, had done a little prep, but didn't really know the space as well as our founder. And so being able to push back, I think, is, is, is a phenomenal skill. And because as a founder, you get so much feedback and so much criticism, criticism from so many different sources. And so knowing when to accept the feedback and take it and integrate it, when to ignore it is a key trait. And, and this, it, it kind of reminds me of a, of a litmus test I've used sometimes when, I, when I'm trying to get to know a founder or if I'm helping a founder evaluate a prospective co-founder. You know, if he or she comes to me and says, hey, I'm trying to think about whether I'd hire this person, you think they'd be a good fit is they'll sometimes suggest the following scenario, which is I can play a role in the scenario. I'll tell the person, hey, bring your prospective co-founder into a meeting with me. And what I'm going to do is no matter what that co-founder says about their idea or as they make the business pitch, I'm going to just give them uh, tons of negative feedback and tell them this idea sucks. You suck. This makes no sense. And it's all actually a setup to see how after the meeting that prospective co-founder reacts. How do they handle it? Do they just immediately agree because, oh, the VC said it's a bad idea? Or do they process it more thoughtfully? And so you're trying to create a scenario to test someone's inclination in this regard. And so, I, you know, I think, Samir, there's, there's, there's so much that we've learned from, from the luminaries. The learning, of course, is one part of it. They are independent thinkers and the way that our founders have interfaced with them to reveal that, that level of independent thought and that ability to take feedback but not take it too much if, if the luminary actually doesn't really know what they're talking about. Uh, that's, a, that's a really special skill and we're, we're, we feel really lucky that a lot of our founders uh, seem to have that skill. That's a great story. How do you apply that to your own team though? Because you're also getting feedback. You're going out there, you're fundraising from limited partners, you're talking to founders. How do you apply that same level of thinking and methodology when you're looking at each other as a team and you're getting this pushback. When do you know how to have conviction versus process information and change things? What does it look like inside Village right now? It's such a great point. And you, you made the point at the outset, Samir, about how starting a firm is its own entrepreneurial undertaking. And there, there are so many parallels between starting a firm and raising money for a firm and starting a company and raising money for a company. Um, of course, there's not 100% overlap, but there are a lot more parallels than people probably think. And for example, when we were out raising Village Fund 2, um, a set of LPs would ask, you know, okay, I understand this Fund 2 vision. Talk to me about your Fund 5 vision. Talk to me about where you see this 15 to 20 years down the road. And I was sort of thinking to myself, this is kind of like a VC asking the founder on day zero when they're, you know, living on ramen noodles and, you know, have cash the last three months. You know, talk to me about the five to ten year vision. You know, you're going you to take this company public. You know, what's the, how is this going to be successful long term? And I'm sure there's a part of the founder when they get that question from the VC that's thinking, oh, my God, I'm hardly like paying rent. I've got nothing. And you're asking about my 10 year vision. And similarly, when sometimes LPs ask that, I was thinking, you know, this is such a competitive market. There's so much execution to do. We're chopping wood and carrying water. Right. That's our that's our mentality right now, Village. And yet at the same time, there is validity to the question. Right. There is validity to this idea of thinking long term and having that long term orientation. And so. So anyway, processing those sorts of questions is, is, is important. And I think at Village, we're to, to, to walk the walk in our own philosophy, we're always seeking multiple perspectives on some of the most contentious and interesting debates within venture. You know, the, the classic one being the importance of ownership and price discipline, right? This is, and Samir, you've been part of these debates on Twitter for years now. Um, there's so many points of view, but we are pretty organized about internally gathering all of the data we can find on these sorts of topics, talking to lots of smart people 
And again, to my the Bill Gates story and our founder who pushed back on him, not just accepting, oh, well, you know, Samir just tweeted the following, that must be true. Or, you know, Roger from IA Ventures says that, you know, the following is true and IA Ventures has been really successful. So that must be the way the venture has to work, right? Not being overly deferential in any one point of view, but trying to be really disciplined about gathering many perspectives and then stepping back and asking ourselves, okay, what's our point of view? How can we synthesize all these different perspectives? And that's one of the fun parts about this industry is like there are so many different perspectives. There's so many smart people who just fundamentally disagree. And, and in fact, that's okay. Because as I said, there are many ways to make money. There are many ways to have fun and have a fulfilling life as a VC, it seems. And, and so laying out those perspectives, stepping back, synthesizing, that's something we try to do on the regular Inside Village. Well, there's no debating that venture, uh, the venture industry has a lot of different opinions, which usually are articulated with high conviction. And if you go on Twitter, they're hotly debated and contested, which I think is a good thing. I also do think that there's no one size fits all. And there's many ways to make money when it comes to how you go about constructing an investment thesis and what you do with portfolio construction. And at the end of the day, either you have picked a certain way of constructing your portfolio which I'd love to understand how you thought about it and why you thought that was the right fit for the village model. It's a hotly debated topic inside venture, I'd say. Um, and people have real theology around this, which I always find fascinating. Like some people are just um, so hardcore in their belief and conviction on this, on this issue. You know, at Village, we run a fairly broad portfolio. Um, and so, you know, we look at firms like YC and we say, yeah, you can own actually a small percentage of a lot of companies, and it means that you're more dependent on a set of companies inside your portfolio exiting for a lot of money. But uh, that's possible if you have a broad net and you're more likely to thus get into the next Coinbase, Uber, whatever. And most GPs I talk to, Samir, they they tell me that they wish they could run a broader portfolio than they do. Right? The GPs I talk to who have a concentrated portfolio, you know, they do 20 companies and a seed fund. They tell me they wish they could do 40 or 60 or 80 companies because they know there's so much randomness and luck at the early stage that they're kind of, you know, there's kind of this story that we have to sell to ourselves and to LPs that, you know, we as GPs have this superpower ability to see around corners. But everyone knows there's a ton of luck and randomness. And so a lot of the concentrator GPs wish they could run a broader portfolio, but they're limited by their own time and attention. And, and there's only just so many companies that they can personally uh, evaluate, meet with and support. At Village, we want a broad portfolio, not just because we believe in that at a portfolio construction sort of philosophical level, but because of our network strategy for sourcing, selecting, and supporting companies, we're actually able to apply a concentrated approach with respect to how we run the process of doing investing. You know, for each of our network leaders, they may do two to three companies a year. And so we can aggregate that activity so that it, it adds up to a broad portfolio. But in the way that we're managing the decision-making process, there's actually a great deal of attention and care. And so it's not spray and pray. It's actually, the we'd like to think it's the best of both. And I think, you know, in this current market where we're seeing companies exit for, you know, or being valued at 50 billion, 75 billion, $100 billion, I think it's been, I'd like to think it's been kind of humbling for VCs who've had a really theological view to ownership, right? Because the whole premise of believing that you have to own 15 or 20% of a company presumed a set of facts regarding the average exit value of startups. But if the average exit value of a startup, or if the potential exit value of a startup, I should say, is more like 10 billion, not 1 billion, or 50 billion rather than 10, or 100 billion rather than 50, well, then you can own two or three or 4% of that company on entry or exit and actually 
you know, make good money on the fund. It depends on the fund size and a million other things. But let's just suppose you're running a hundred or hundred fifty million dollar fund or fifty million dollar fund. You know, you don't have to own that much of the company if it's exiting at that kind of level. And so I think in this current moment in 2021, I would say there's a, a broader appreciation for the broader portfolio lower ownership strategy, which which we have at Village. But like, as you said, there are many ways to be successful, and you got to play to your strengths. And for us, with a network strategy and a community value prop. We think our breadth of portfolio not just can make us money, but also has other positive consequences for our founders and being part of this broader network and being able to learn from a broader number of founders. So there, there are a lot of reasons to do breadth. But from a math perspective, the math looks pretty compelling right now when we look at how the public markets are valuing are valuing companies like Coinbase, et cetera. It is an interesting topic. You're, you're right. It is one that's hotly debated. And I, I see merits for both sides. I don't, I don't think there's a one size fits all. But I, I do want to maybe push on one one side, which is the current environment right now. You you are seeing the Coinbase's, you're seeing companies like Wish and Shopify, and, and companies that when they do reach liquidity are are going at it much much higher valuations. And if you even look maybe 10, 15 years ago, you had Google when it went public, it was eighteen billion dollars. You had Amazon that was three hundred million. You simply don't see that by the time they get acquired or that you know get to the public markets. But you're investing at a time when these companies that you invest in are going to mature in three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. And is it your view that the current environment of these you know, 10 billion, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollar type of exits is what we're likely to see on a go forward basis? And is that how you underwrite to the lower ownership? Or is it more of a function of, hey, we're going to get enough shots at goal that we are going to get a lot of those companies. And so even if the exit values go from 40 billion to 10 billion, we have enough reach that we can get multiple of those companies and therefore still get that nice three or four X exit on the fund. Well, for us at Village right now, we're, we're acquiring between five and 7% ownership on the first check. So one third of our companies go through an accelerator like YC, that's 7% ownership, and then two thirds of the portfolio and it tends to be at, at other pre-seed and seed prices. So we're buying between five and 7% on ownership, uh, on entry. We actually, in terms of what we underwrite and sell to our LPs, we do not presume that any of our companies will exit for 10 plus billion dollars. That's all, that's all icing on the cake. What we need and what we've modeled is we need a couple of our companies to exit for more than a, a billion dollars, right? I think our outlier exit, as we've modeled, is something like three or $5 billion exit. You know, if we have one of those across a portfolio of 150 or 200 companies, um, that's critical for us to 3x the fund. And so we're not actually banking on Coinbase size exits, but we know it's really possible. And and so I think actually the math is a lot more approachable. Once you actually, if you do the math, and of course there are a lot of variables here, dilution, a number of rounds and all that. So we're, we're simplifying for this sort of brief conversation. But in general, um, we don't expect to have those sorts of exits, but we know they're possible. And I would say, and who knows what the future holds, but if you believe that software is eating the world and software is eating biology and software is eating money and all the rest, it's hard to, for me to make the case. And of course, you and I are both in this bubble, Samir, of, of, um, of techno optimism, et cetera. But it's, I, I suspect it'd be hard for either of us to see a world in which tech becomes less valuable over time, not more valuable. And so the prospect, yeah, maybe we're it's a little frothy a bubble now, but the idea that in 10, 20 years, tech companies are going to be less valuable, I just find that, I would find that hard to believe. I agree. And I, and I tend to often try to disassociate what happens in the financial markets with what's happening in innovation. I do think these companies become bigger and bigger, especially in different verticals that 
are still early in their adoption of technology and have massive market sizes. You brought up something that I that I always find interesting is, you know, you mentioned the five to seven percent ownership, and what we're seeing right now with a lot of the seed firms, and we we see now even with the solo GPs, the sub ten million dollar funds, is often they can provide these low friction checks because they have a lot of flexibility on things like ownership. And when I when I talk to managers, we often talk about this ownership threshold. And not being overly pedantic and saying, this is what I have to get. And if I don't get that 5 to 7%, I'm not going to invest. And I do think you have to build around some level of exceptions. But you often don't want to get to a point where every single deal becomes an exception, where now that 5 to 7% gets 2 to 4% or lower. How do you think about versatility when it comes to, and flexibility, really, I should use a better term, on the ownership piece that you look at? When do you find it's right to have conviction to go outside of that? It's the ultimate judgment call that we have to make over and over again. And it's so hard, and so tricky um, to, 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 to know when to make an exception and to sort of check yourself on, well, wait, if all we're doing is making exceptions, do we actually have a rule? The way we think about it internally at Village is we track our portfolio and our ownership in each company, of course. We track the percentage of times that we achieve our ownership target. And so we know that it's not going to be 100% of the time. But you know, if it's only 40% of the time or 50% of the time, do we really, in good faith, have a, a real target, right? Can we really, can I say on a podcast like this that we're targeting 5 to 7% ownership if most of the time we're getting something way less than that? And so to keep ourselves honest, we have a running spreadsheet where we're tracking the percentage of the time that we're achieving our goal. And so that creates a sense of comfort that we know we're making exceptions, but every time we do one of those exceptions, it dings our internal metric. I think to stay sane in this business, you have to have rules. You have to have a framework. If every decision is a brand new blank slate decision, and let's think about this blue sky, you know, what makes sense? You're going to go crazy. Things are moving so quickly. Speed and agility really matters in this business, especially at the early stage. So you have to have a set of rules to make this work. And so we have some rules. We, we do make exceptions, and then we track the percentage of the time we're making exceptions, and that seems to work for us. I think that is correct, and there has to be this rough framework. It does make sense, obviously, to vary. I like that you have certain KPIs and how you measure how many times you're making exceptions and figuring out what the rule is to ensure that there is a framework. Like If we zoom out for a second, though, there's so many different models. We've talked about ownership. We've talked about your network as a service. And today's world of venture is so different than it was 15 years ago. It's far away from this monolith. You have rolling funds, solo GPs that are sub 20 million. You have folks like yourself that are in that $100 million. You have Series A, B firms. You have multi-product firms. Where do you see the world right now in terms of where you're sitting? Where do you fit in? And then ultimately, what are you excited about as it relates to the venture ecosystem? Well, I think there may be two trends. There's so many interesting trends. There may be two that I'll point out. One that is, I think, more transient and another trend that might be more durable or more lasting uh, in venture. So th the trend that I think is, is a bit more transient is this idea that the mega multi-stage firms are increasingly competing at seed. Mega firm, the multi-stage firms have an on-again, off-again relationship with, with seed. They 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 on the one hand, they feel like they need to be in every seed round to get a sense of what's hot when it's time to lead the A. And on the other hand, they keep raising larger and larger funds. And so they just can't justify GP time and attention to focus on writing a 500 k or million dollar check. And so it feels like for the last you know decade, every 
other year, there's a firm that announces a new program, how they're going to focus on seed. I think Index Ventures just announced something a couple weeks ago. We, we're, we're, you know, Index is alive at seed. Here's our seed program. And all, all the firms, all the big firms are doing that. But then I feel like it's inevitable because we've seen this story before where a year or two into it, a GP who's only going to do three or four deals a year is getting paid a ton of money to just do those deals, can't justify spending the time on a 500K check at seed. And if they write that check, they certainly can't justify the time to support the entrepreneur post-investment. And so I, while it's true that the multi-stage firms are a real competitive threat to many of the seed firms today, and it's also true, and some will show and others have, have written about this, that a lot of today's founders are choosing Lightspeed at Seed or Founders Fund at Seed or what have you over the traditional seed-only shops. I think long-term, I don't view that as uh, likely a durable phenomenon. I think by contrast, a, a trend that is sort of hot right now that I do think is is going to last, of course, it will evolve and iterate, but is this what we at Village are calling the rise of the individual. It's a society-wide trend. We see it in Substack and journalism or Patreon and uh, OnlyFans, these sorts of platforms that are enabling individual creators to establish a platform and monetize their talents. That is happening in venture. We're seeing angels and, and scouts and solo capitalists raise funds. And there might some of them are, are running quite small funds, but they're, they're independent funds nonetheless. And founders are preferencing these individuals. Founders are, are saying, I'd rather pull together a syndicate of eight uh, individuals, some of whom are full-time investors, some of whom are still you know, VPs of product at some company that they admire. I'd rather raise around that way than go take a million and a half dollar check from a traditional institutional seed fund. And so I think the rise of the individual and the decline of the firm to some degree is, is, is here now and I think will be with us uh, for a long time to come. So for firms like yourself, and it is an interesting thing because we have seen a lot of the big aircraft carrier firms come downstream and invest at the seed level. And it's hard to fathom a billion dollar fund making a lot of time for an investment that's $500,000. And while I do think things like signaling risk are probably overblown, I, I really don't think that's a big issue for a founder. I also do think about where firms like you look at some of those solo, you know, let's say entrepreneur, part-time VCs, people that are frictionless checks, but could add a ton of value. And I think a lot of those, the ratio of help to dollars is actually quite good. Do you think that relationship between institutional seed firms like yourself and those type of funders is symbiotic in nature? Or do you feel like a lot of seed funds will actually compete heavily with those cohorts of people that are banding together to uh, to fund companies? Well, this is where I think our network DNA is quite useful because we have already been teaming with angels and scouts in a very proactive and intentional and structured and you know legal kind of way, uh, right? So our whole model is running as a network, venture as a network. And, and so we feel really well positioned in this trend to continue to support them, to back them, to partner with them, to collaborate with them, these individuals, that is, these solo capitalists in a way that's very mutually rewarding for Village and, to, and, and for them and for the founders that we're all collectively backing. I think if you're a more traditional institutional seed fund where you're highly GP-centric, I think it represents more of a threat. And it also represents more of a threat because of ownership orientation. So again, at Village, we you know have a material ownership ask, like it's not like an angel who's, hey, 25K check, I don't care what the price is, I don't care, I'm not thinking about ownership, just go have fun. It's not that. But it's also not, you know, hey, we're looking to buy 10 to 15, 20% of the company. So we can actually co-invest and coexist 
with both uh, a syndicate of angels and, by the way, the multi-stage firms that come down markets. So like, you know, the founders fund or Spark buying 10% of a seed round and the founder wants to sell 15, 20% of the company or whatever, our 5 to 7% ownership target can actually nicely coexist in that world in a way that a traditional ownership target by any of the great institutional seed funds that we all know and love, you know, Uncork, Floodgate, First Round Capital, what have you, uh, they tend to be looking to buy more ownership in that first check. And so I think there tends to be more of a zero-sum dynamic between the multi-stage firms and the institutional, the institutional seeds. And then with respect to the, the collection of individuals, sometimes that same zero-sum dynamic plays out, right? If there's going to be eight individuals uh, who each want to write a fifty dollars to $100,000 check, and the founder only wants to raise a million dollars, well, how much room is there for another institutional seed fund to come in and buy 10 to 15%, right? So I think our sort of our small, our lower ownership target allows us to coexist kind of nicely uh, within and among these trends. That's great. And you brought it up. And I have one, one last question that I want to get to our final segment. I know a LP asked you, what does Fund 5 look like? Given what you see in your crystal ball of the evolution of the venture industry and what you expect, what does Fund 5 look like for Village? I can say a couple things that uh, with certainty, but there's a lot that's, of course, uncertain. Um, first, you know, our firm name is called Village Global. That second word is part of the is part of our belief. Global. You know, we are we we we've done a lot of global investing in funds one and now out of fund two, and we expect that trend will continue. Where there's talent everywhere, but there's not sufficient capital, and so be it in developed markets like Western Europe, or emerging markets in LATAM and Southeast Asia, we expect we'll be doing even more globally than we are today. And then second, we expect to be doing in Fund 5 and beyond doing all that activity through this network strategy, right? That's a that's core to our DNA. I think what might be different is I can imagine us playing at more stages than we are today. I mean, a lot of our luminaries are, are interested in backing early stage founders, and they're also pretty interested in the breakout entrepreneurs. Uh, we do an event every year that we don't uh, talk about very much, but it's for 50 to 60 of the most talented unicorn founders, privately held unicorns across any venture portfolio uh, in the world, so not just ours, and we connect them with our, our luminaries. And when we meet some of these unicorn founders and they connect with our luminaries and they experience on the village, it has occurred to us that we have a network that could be valuable at that stage too. And so there are a lot of ideas like that that I could see us getting to if we are able to execute and uh, stay focused in the, these next few years. Let's go actually to our final segment, which is our hit check round. You've been at this for four, almost five years now at Village. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned running a firm and as an investor so far? Sometimes contrarian thinking is overrated. And I get that this is almost like meta because we're talking about counterintuitive lesson and, and, and contrarian thinking being overrated. But you know what? Sometimes it's the known trend, the known company, the known entrepreneur that you should back. Sometimes we overthink this point. Um, sometimes where there's a lot of heat and light around a given deal, that actually is the deal that you want to back. Given that construct, and it's something that you've, you've sort of observed over the last few years, you've seen a lot of companies, you've invested in a lot of companies. There's always a company that every single investor I've ever spoken to has missed, and they've learned a lesson from it. I don't know if this falls into your former comment, but is there a company that you missed and you look back and said, God, you know, I missed it. I thought it was the right decision, but I actually now have changed my thinking of how I approach certain things from an from an investment standpoint because of that. It's interesting. One one of the companies that I met with a long time ago um, when they were raising their seed was BetterUp, uh, which is you know pairs coaches, executive coaches, and the like with companies, and it's now valued multiple billions of dollars. 
and I love coaches. I've, I've gotten a lot of uh, benefit out of coaches, but speaking coaches, writing coaches, executive coaches and the like. And I love the coaching model. And I, and I love the pitch that uh, people at, you know, the middle manager at Adobe would benefit from an executive coach. Right? I believe that was one of the initial parts of their pitch. I just couldn't figure out how they could scalably uh, find and onboard all these coaches, like how many great executive coaches are there out there. And I think what I failed to understand is that part of being a great coach is just being a, is it being a great listener. And there are a lot of people who can be trained to be good listeners. And I believe what BetterUp did in the early days was, you know, like they went and recruited you know, grad students in psychology and said, hey, do you want to be executive coach? <laughs> and, and, you know, a little bit of training and boom, now you can, it's not that hard to acquire that coach. You don't have to pay him a ton. And then you can sort of lease them out to Adobe and the like, and the exec, the middle manager is happy and the coach is happy, et cetera. So I think the economics worked better than I anticipated. And in that case, I think the lesson was, I mean, it's, 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 these are, this is the hard part about this business is like in hindsight, it always seems obvious where the founders had spent so much time thinking about this problem, talking to all of these grad students in psychology and other folks and learning the coaching landscape really, really well. The idea that I, with five minutes of reflection could just dismiss sort of on a unique, unique economics basis, that model and not actually defer to their obvious talent and their obvious market knowledge. That was a mistake. And I hope I don't make it again. This business is an ultimate continuous learning business. And right now everything looks great and has looked great for the last you know 12 years and everyone feels very smart, but I've seen it over and over again. It will tend to humble you, you over time, right? And so, you know, it's a great story. It's a great lesson. And speaking of lessons and things that you've learned, you've worked with these incredible luminaires. I don't think I've had a guest that's had exposure to so many incredible people that have done such great things from a business, from a philanthropic, from a professional standpoint, and certainly a personal standpoint in many ways. And this may be an unfair question, but when you've worked with all these different investors, is there a certain investor outside of Reed that you have looked up the most to? And if so, who is that and why? When I was 14 years old and starting my first company, I met Brad Feld when he was at Mobius uh, Venture Capital at the time. And uh, I was then really fortunate to hang out at his office uh, a little later on in 2007 in Boulder, Colorado, when they were founding Foundry Group and getting Techstars off the ground. And uh, I've since become quite close uh, to Brad and his wife. And um, I dedicate my portion of, of uh, the Alliance, which is one of the books I wrote on talent management to, to Brad and his wife, because I've learned uh, so much from, from him and from them really as a couple. I think the thing that's most striking about Brad is the combination of IQ and EQ. He is you know, off the charts IQ, but so are a lot of people in venture. That's one of the things I like about this business. I mean, just so many of these GPs I meet are just are stunningly smart. And of course, the founders are incredibly smart as well. So there's a lot of smart people in this industry. It's something Mark Benioff told me back in the day was like, you will be blown away at how many smart people there are. Ben, he told me, and he's like, smarts alone are not enough. Like if you think you can just get, a lot, get away with smarts here, that's, it's just simply not enough. And I'll never forget that. And Brad is a great example of that because he doesn't just have smarts. He also is one of the most emotionally intelligent and emotionally empathetic uh, people I've ever met in any industry. And when those two things come together in the venture business, it's incredibly powerful because you can build these really deep relationships with founders, with your fellow partners at the firm, with the LPs and all the other constituents that make this ecosystem go round. And so I'm really grateful to him for that. And it's, it's, it, it, it's caused me to continue to reflect on how I can deepen my understanding, of course, in all the intellectual things and the trends and crypto and, you know, uh, genetic engineering and all the other things that we have to learn in this business to stay up to date. 
but also to continue to invest in deepening my ability to build relationships and listen and uh, understand my own emotions, understand other people's emotions, have empathy. Uh, just the human part of life is something that uh, he's a paragon of excellence in. It's something I couldn't agree more with. And I've thought about this a lot. You're right. Everyone in venture is incredibly smart and well-read and has gone to some of the best schools and has worked with or a lot of other smart people. The whole concept of EQ is one that everyone's sort of like, yeah, sure. You have, you know, you have EQ and like that's that's important. But people underestimate how much of a competitive differentiator it can be as an investor in terms of building the relationships necessary to build your own brand and reputation and work with founders and actually win deals. And so it's a great point that you bring up. And Brad obviously is a legend in the industry and has helped a lot of people. Ben, uh, you know, this has been a lot of fun as always. Every time we talk, there's always something interesting that we can we cover. Thanks again for being on the show and, and all of uh, all the support you've shown us over the past several years. Thank you so much for having me, Smir. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed this episode with Ben. To learn more about him and Village Global, make sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 